Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So one uh, one thing that's I don't know if this is there's some sort of disconnect here, but one thing that I've found recently is that I'm not listening to as many podcasts as I as I usually have, uh, and I think the the reason for this is that I don't know what it is, but I find I find choice kind of overwhelming at the moment. And I think, you know, it's like in normal life, there are things happening externally to you. And so you don't have to choose everything uh, that you're doing. Some things just happen to you, you know, who you're going to talk to and when you're going to talk to them and what you're going to go do. Some people hit you up and there's things going on or you run into someone. None of that happens these days, right? And uh, so now everything is like you wake up, you decide what you're going to eat, uh, you decide what you're going to work on, you decide if you're going to you know, work out that day, you decide you, uh, you know, all this stuff the other day, and then when it's time for hanging out, it's like, okay, I'm going to uh, you know, d- decide what to watch on Netflix, which is, of course, the hardest decision of all. I'm going to decide what to listen to, you know, and it's... It, it, Without any external cues on on what to do, what to engage with, it's just so many decisions over and over and over again. And so I think that's partially why, you know, single episode things, whether it's like a movie or a podcast, I'm finding a little bit less uh, in, in engaging recently. And, you know, one of the, the what I've been listening to are actually... Um, you know, so I've always loved audiobooks, but I've been getting into the audiobook versions of the great courses. Uh, now, this is not an ad for the great courses. I just happen to like their stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm listening to Language Families of the World right now with John McWhorter, which is just about the most nerdy language course you could take because it's literally just John, God bless him, who is the the largest language nerd of all time going through basically just language family by language family and saying, well, here's how the grammar works. Here's how the, you know, like here are the, the, the syntactic peculiarities. And that is me doing an impression of John McWhorter doing an impression of John McWhorter. If you ever listen to him, he loves uh, I mean, he loves sound. He's a linguist. He's, he's connected to the way words sound and, can, and the way people use them and talk in it. Anyway, uh, it's a great course, um, hence the name of the, the series. Uh, and it makes me think more generally about how many things there are that we don't know that we haven't learned about or engaged with via our education uh, that we're simply happy to forfeit right and no matter how much education we have how much uh, you know how many different classes we took how interdisciplinary how how broad of a range we got in undergraduate and, and beyond there's just so much out there that we haven't engaged with. Even for me, I like language. I've been studying language in many capacities for first time, for, for for a long time. But this is the first time d- diving into them from the perspective of the, of the language families. And I think the broader point here is that, you know, once we sort of leave undergraduate, even if it is to pursue further education in graduate school, we're happy to just write off the vast majority of human knowledge and say like, oh, you know, economics, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to learn anything about that. Oh, linguistics. I just, I'm just going to use language every minute of every day for the rest of my life, but not really 
uh, you know, have to deal, really learn anything about, about how it actually, how I use it or how other people use it. Right. And I think that, uh, you know, we sort of fall into this pattern of like, well, what I have is good enough. I have the things I'm interested in and, 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 uh, you know, I don't really need anything else. And I think that that is, that's one thing that I've been examining in myself. You know, I, I definitely comes up in my mind from time to time. That's definitely something I've been thinking about. Uh, more recently and, and how I can, what are the biggest holes that I have in my education of things that not only I haven't studied as much as I'd like, but haven't even occurred to me to study yet. And so I'm trying to probe that a little bit more and see if I can reconnect with some of those, um, you know, just some of those larger picture things that, that may have escaped me for whatever reason, or I may have overlooked when I initially, when I initially looked at them. And doing, you know, those those courses and, and, and audiobooks and whatever it is, I, I think is, is a solid way to do that. Okay, so my guest for today is Ethan Cross, uh, which is just a badass name. It sounds like it should be the main character of the Mission Impossible uh, series. But as far as I know, that's not the case. Uh, Ethan is actually a professor of psychology and management slash organizations at the University of Michigan. He has a new book out called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. We definitely talk a lot about, you know, where the, you know, it's it's part of his, obviously the book builds on his program of research, and we talk a lot about, you know, where those ideas sort of came from in his personal life, how they developed academically, and then, and then how they developed into the book. His uh, most cited paper is from 2013, um, totally unrelated to the chatter um, sort of line of, of research, um, but it's called Facebook Use Predicts Declines in Subjective Wellbeing in Young Adults. Uh, and one of the first, you know, paper, first empirical papers to look at the potentially negative psychological fa- effects of social media. Uh, another fact about uh, Ethan is that he has a personal mantra but is not presently at liberty to disclose it publicly. Um, so yeah, it was a fun conversation, and um, I'm, 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 I really enjoyed having it, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So without any further ado, here is Ethan Cross. So you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning of your book, but um, I'm just curious to know about where you grew up. So I grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York, um, and, um, you know, it's funny, Brooklyn right now is the, I think it's fairly non-controversial to say the epicenter of coolness for the world. Still true. Uh, I wouldn't be or... the right person to judge that, but that sounds about, that sounds. About, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm not either, but that's what, that's what my students. <laughs> Two non-experts. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but it was dis- distinctively and decidedly not cool growing up there. It was, um, a very much, uh, a kind of middle class, um, more like a neighborhood you might see in like a a mafia movie starring Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. And so it was a, it was a kind of a tough place to grow up. Um, interesting melting pot. You know, you every color dialect was represented in my my high school. Four thousand or so students, um, and and so it was an interesting place to grow up. Um, and, and yeah, so that's, that's where the first part of life happened. And, and then I left Brooklyn. I vowed to never go back. Uh, I haven't gone back there to live, but, um, but I have gone there on vacation a few times, which has pained me a little bit, but, um, 
but that's where it started. What did your parents do? My mom's a teacher uh, or was a teacher um, lifelong. And my dad uh, was a salesman, uh, lots of different kinds of like uh, school fundraisers and things like that. Yeah. Your dad sounds like a particularly interesting guy. And, you know, it sounds like there was a lot of different sides of him. Can you say a little bit about, um, I don't know, like, yeah, what the, the way you imagine him and then also, you know, some of the things that he taught you? Yeah, my dad is an interesting guy. Um, he yeah. uh, he is a uh, you know he, he's a non college grad, but incredibly well read uh, and with a a real interest in in Eastern philosophy and science. And so from a, a remarkably young age, he started talking to me about about ideas from Hinduism and Buddhism and and science and psychology. And so uh, so that made for an interesting upbringing. Um, we did lots of, at the time, seemingly bizarre activities. You know, um, he took me to get a mantra when I was five years old on a whim. We what, went, what is we, getting a mantra? What is getting a mantra? So a mantra is used in meditation, um, where you repeat. Right. A, I'm familiar with uh, the generic term. How does one obtain one? Well, uh, the, the way I obtained one was by, by going to a, a, a center for meditation in New York City. And uh, you meet with uh, someone who is, I guess, qualified to give mantras and they whisper it in your ear and then they tell you not to tell anyone what it is. And So wait, I, if I asked you, you right now it. what your mantra is, you couldn't tell me? You couldn't disclose No, that. I can't. That was an oath oh I God. swore. So I can't reveal the mantra. I will, <laughs> I will just disintegrate if I do. And it won't so, work anymore. It uh, won't work. Wow. Uh, so, you know, um, so those kinds of, of experiences. And, you know, as I talk about in the book, they were, they were somewhat, not somewhat, they were foundational in the sense that from a very young age, my dad taught me to, to the value of introspection, um, the ability to focus inward, to try to find solutions to problems when they occurred. And that was a skill that I really did rely on uh, and continue to rely on. But... What was interesting is when I left Brooklyn and went to college at, at Penn, I took my first psychology class. And when we got to the topic of introspection, I learned that although it can be useful at times, it can also often backfire in pretty remarkable ways uh, in, in other instances. And so that really sparked a curiosity that I still have today, which is why is it that we have this tool, this ability to use our mind to focus inward, to make sense of our problems? But we, we don't always wield it very well. You often get stuck ruminating and worrying and catastrophizing. And so uh, so that really launched me into, into grad school and beyond to try to figure out, well, why does introspection sometimes run awry? And when it does, what can you do to bring it back on track? And uh, it's been, been a fun question to explore. So we'll talk a lot about what you did with this uh, you know, basic question that you just outlined there. Um, but where I'm, I'm sort of curious to know, where did your dad get into this stuff? Um, if he thought it was so, it was obviously important to him in his own life. And he thought it was important to sort of give to you uh, as, uh, you know, from a young age. Where did, where exactly did he come across it? Where did he get into it? What's, what, what do you well, know? Well, I think, I, th I think growing up, growing up, you know, during the 60s, um, the Beatles, transcendental meditation. These were cultural movements that occurred um, 
how many, 60, many decades ago. And uh, I think he just became intrigued by by those ideas and and the readings that related to them that he wanted to share. I think, like most parents, when you find something that you think is useful, you you want to sh- you often share that with your children so that they can benefit from it. And I talk about that too in the book. Like, you know, our inner voice is shaped by the voices of our of the people around us. And um, you know, although I have not. Uh, adopted many of my dad's viewpoints on these issues over time. Um, I really value being exposed to them from a, from a really young age. You know, back then it was kind of annoying. You know, I was hoping when I was five years old to get like a new bicycle and not a mantra for my birthday. (laughs) So, uh, you know, like going to do these kinds of seemingly bizarre activities on the weekends, you know, at at the time they felt kind of strange, like let's, let's go see what a sensory deprivation tank is like, Ethan. And we did that one weekend and, um, you know, let's, let's check out a UFO convention. Okay. You know, this is a little weird. And so right back then, you know, my buddies were, were not doing that. Um, but, but I do value those kinds of exposures that I had early on. They, um, they were interesting. I think they helped shape who I am. So when you got to Penn, did you know that you wanted to study psychology or was that one of many potential ways of, because you, know, you could have been a major in like UFO studies, right? It wouldn't, doesn't have, <laughs> you didn't have to go the sensory deprivation inspiration. Hey, there's a book, there's a book out right now, um, very by about, about this stuff. Um, well, so, I mean, it's big, it's probably, you know, as, as, as much as psychology seems like a big, uh, you yeah, know, mark, market yeah. to the people who are interested, I'm sure UFOs is a bigger market than psychology. Oh, so, oh uh, yeah. Yeah. They, they do capture the fascination. Yeah, no, but, I did yeah. not, did not know I wanted to do psychology. I did not take any psych classes, uh, in high school that I can remember. Uh, and you know, where I grew up in Brooklyn, if you did well in high school, you basically had two career paths ahead of you. You either became a doctor and by a doctor, I mean the real kind, you know, not the one, not the PhDs, but, but an MD, according to folks that I grew up with, uh, or you became, you know, a lawyer, those were the two options. And so I, I didn't even know about, uh, the possibility of, of, you know, of, spending your life studying the mind. Uh, and I have calculus um, to thank for psychology because I, I signed up for pre-med my first year. I slept through calculus, uh, most of those classes. I did not enjoy it, nor the other pre-med classes I took. And, um, and after my first semester, I decided this is not what I want to do. And so that was kind of liberating. Uh, and, and I ended up taking a, a broad swath of classes, uh, folklore, psych, international relations, and several of them caught my interest. Uh, for a while, I was, I was trying to decide between psychology and, and um, international relations. Uh, I loved history, but ultimately psychology really won the day. And uh, I haven't really looked back. I went straight, straight out of college to grad school and uh, it's been a fun ride. Yeah. Yeah. And you also, you minored in religious studies as well, right? I did. And so there you see some of the influence of, of my early upbringing there, um, getting to read about many of the, the kinds of traditions that I had spent a lot of time talking to my dad about growing up and reading about, 
studying that was a lot of fun. And, and I minor, minored in religious studies. I'd say the bulk of the coursework was actually on uh, Eastern religion. And, you know, there's the, the philosophy plays such a role in, in religion. And uh, I continue to be captivated by, by religion. I'm not religious myself. I'm secular, but, but the idea that we have these, these systems of ways of thinking that really in some ways, I think, provide us with tools to manage our mind. And psychology was a nice complement to studying religious studies because religious studies, there was no experimentation, right? And so psychology, here you have people who are in a certain sense interested in very similar ideas about the mind and how it operates in a social context and how it can be harnessed. But those ideas are then being submitted to experimentation and um, the scientific method, which I found really attractive. For a while, I thought about actually coming up with my own major, which you can do at Penn, uh, merging religious studies and, and, and psychology, but, but ultimately did not do that. So No, no. Um, okay. And so when did, so you, you, uh, um, psychology sat well with you as long with, some, along with some other, uh, related fields. And like you said, uh, you, from pretty early on, you had a focus in on the kinds of questions that you were, you were interested in, and you certainly started addressing those during graduate school and everything. So how, like you said, and you, you also went straight into graduate school. So at what point did you start to get a concrete sense of, what this question was about introspection and uh, how we talk to ourselves and our internal monologue and that sort of stuff. When did the ideas around that start to become concrete for you? Well, I I did approach. I I, I was interested in that idea in college, and I, I I was one of those students who went to graduate school with an interest in this already developed and. Um, and I ended up working with uh, Walter Michel, who, um, you know, had spent much of his career studying how we can manage ourselves generally in the context of self-control. And so he was an ideal guy to study with because, well, I mean, f- for many reasons, he was an ideal person to study with, but, but he had general knowledge about self-regulation and self-control. And the idea was, okay, let's apply this general knowledge to studying introspection. And, and so we hit it off right away. Um, there's also a postdoc in his lab, Aslam Aduk at the time, who I also hit it off with. And we became a trio that started looking at this um, really from the early days of graduate school. And, um, and we've been continuing to work on it ever, ever since. So, so I think that's, that, was, um, that was helpful to, to just be able to, to get to graduate school and just hit the ground running. I don't think it's essential for people who are listening and may not have their question fully formed. I often think actually that some people rush too fast to get their question if they don't have it. Um, you know, I think everyone matures at different rates and, and you've got time in graduate school to do that. But, but, but I did start chomping at the bit pretty soon on this issue of introspection and how to make it work for us. Yeah. And the, the sort of first fruits of that were uh, your 2005 paper on when asking why does not hurt uh, uh, distinguishing rumination from reflective processing of negative emotions, right? That was... Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, 
yeah, so what's, yeah, can you say a little bit more about, um, yeah, hmm. Yeah, so that that was that was a germ. It's like okay, here we've got this thing. It's it's a uh, it makes sense to you on a like personal level. You've got a paradigm for it. How does your research program grow grow from there? Well, you know, I think, and, and I think this is true for many students, uh, and it was for me. So early part of graduate school, you really zoom in on a question, and you spend a lot of time working on it. And you know, things were so much different back then. I mean, twenty years ago it took a long time to do studies, you know, I mean, I don't think I published that first paper until my fourth year in graduate school. So I didn't have um, many, I didn't have really any papers until that. And so it took a while. And in part, because it just took so much time to get subjects into the lab and pilot test ideas and things like that. Um, Once, once that work started to develop, though, then then I became more open to lots of different ways of, on the one hand, taking that phenomenon and exploring it, trying to extend it into different areas, look at boundary conditions, um, but also became very open to pursuing lots of other kinds of questions. And so, uh, you know, I got involved in studies looking at, well, first of all, social neuroscience was exploding back then. And so I became interested in trying to think about how can we incorporate neural measures into the, the work that I was doing? I've always been a fan of trying to study phenomena from different angles. I don't, I don't think one level of analysis is privileged by any means. I think they offer different snapshots uh, at a phenomenon, but the brain seems like seemed at the time, and I think still does to me, seem like a useful window to, to look through. Um, and so I started doing some, some neuroscience work and then getting interested in other questions like how similar are social and physical pain? And that, that was a fun line of inquiry to, um, to work on, you know, recruiting people who have been dumped in romantic relationships in New York city and getting them to think about being dumped while we were scanning their brains. Um, and, uh, and then I always just remained open to new kinds of questions. Um, both at towards the end of graduate school and and and, and throughout my career, since then, uh, you know, I think I think that's one of the the really neat things about doing what we do, is we get to ask and try to answer really interesting questions that we find interesting about human nature. That's really fun. That's a privileged place to be in, right? Like that's what we spend our time doing, and so. Uh, so I always try to remain open to, to new questions. And um, now I've got two criteria, actually, I always ask myself before I, I dive into something. And this has been true for a while. You know, number one, does, does answering this question, if everything works out, and it often doesn't, but if everything did work out, would answering this question really have the potential to, to advance basic knowledge, right? Really move the needle in terms of understanding about something important. And or does answering this question have the potential to really help people in some consequential way? And if I can answer yes to one of those two questions, then I usually do do the project. Um, if I can answer if if the the question the project satisfies both of those questions, even better. Yeah. So yeah, another line of research that you've done is on social media and well-being, right? Uh, and 
Yeah, can you say so that so I think your your most cited paper is that 2013 paper on Facebook use um, and declines in subjective well-being. Um, so what where did that interest start? Did that is there is there a line to draw between that and um, you know sort of your earlier work on uh, you know I yeah. guess yeah is or did that that just sort of come out of a, a you know something new? Well, you know, I, I'm interested in emotion, right, and, and emotion regulation. Um, so that's the extent of there being a common umbrella that captures the early other work I was doing in social media. But the social media, the origins of that work, that, that started as a total side project. You know, in the late 2000s, there was this, this thing that not everyone had heard of called Facebook. And I remember... I remember just being on Facebook and looking like, wait a second, like people are talking a lot about their, about things in their life and other people are responding, they're expressing. We, we know a lot about how this works offline, like when we share things and people respond, but like what's happening online? And, you know, I was an early assistant professor when I first started just getting curious about this technology. And I, I remember being insecure about whether I should do some research on it. It seemed kind of froofy like this Facebook stuff online. And I remember going over to a, a senior colleague who ended up being a co-author on the paper and a partner in all this work, John Janitas, a very distinguished cognitive neuroscientist. And I, I took him aside. I'm like, hey, John, I want to ask you something. You know, Just bear with me here. There's this new thing called Facebook. Have you heard about it? And I explained the thing. And he had some familiarity with it. And, and, and you know, I just articulated my, my interest and wanted to get his advice about whether he thought it was worth pursuing. It was very encouraging. And then we started, uh, John, myself, and several other faculty and students, for a couple of years, we had this golden period of meeting each week, reading, thinking, doing, where we're all really excited. We felt like we were trying to tackle some new, new shift that was a characterizing society. We're trying to understand how it works. And um, and so that PLOS paper was the first uh, the first fruit that that uh, those efforts gave rise to, and it was just a really exciting project to work on. Um, so yeah, that's cool. Um, all right, so we've sort of mapped a little bit of the terrain from uh, beginning of undergrad and everything through uh, some of those early important papers. I want to maybe go back a little bit earlier and ask like so um what were the what were the books that have had the longest lasting influence on you that you look up to the the writing in it or um you know what you what you learned from it and doesn't have to be academic text can be but it can also be you know poetry memoirs novels whatever what are the what are some mm -hmm. of the titles that come to your mind that have most uh impacted you and shaped the way you think and or, or just you know left some sort of lasting mark well, the first one's an easy one, um, Victor Frank Oman's Search for Meaning. I think I read that every year. I teach it when I teach my seminars. Uh, I read that book in a religion class, actually, in college. And I remember just being totally blown away. Uh, you know, I, I, both of, um, on one side, both of my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. So I've been hearing about the Holocaust since for as long as I can remember, going to remembrance tributes each year. Uh, and so I was intimately familiar with that experience that people had. But then I read Viktor Frankl, and 
it, it just transported me into that moment in time in a way I had never, I had never actually experienced. So here is a guy who loses everything that matters to him, but still manages to endure and eventually thrive. And I, I, I found his story gripping uh, for several reasons. The way he talked about his life, uh, number one. Uh, the the number two that the insight that he derived from his own experiences was I think just incredible. Like this is this was a guy who was always thinking about how the mind worked, and I think there's a lesson there for all of us, right? Like you know you want you want ideas about things, like read the newspaper, go have a conversation. Like there's so much we don't know about the human condition, right? That we don't yet fully understand. Just look at what's happened in the world over the past four or five years, right? Like there's so much that we can't yet predict. And so Frankel was just, I think, an incredible observer of human behavior. And and I love the message too, the message of hope that was that was strewn throughout the book. So so Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning, really powerful for me, really impressed upon me the idea that our thoughts aren't our destiny. We possess the capacity to reframe how we think in ways that can improve the way we feel. Uh, another another book was um, Marty Seligman's learned uh, learned optimism. So Seligman was uh, was actually a professor at Penn. I took a class with him, and I worked in his lab, and we read his book during one of his seminars. And that book also impressed on me the power of the mind to, to power of the the idea of agency that we possess the ability to, to change the way we we um, think, to change the way we feel. But more importantly, it, it it told a story that I thought was really interesting. His ability to, to talk about his experiences in the lab and in life and, and, and how to go back and forth between those, uh, I found really captivating and, and helpful. And so that's another book that stands out. Uh, two others outside of the psych genre would be um, uh, Brian Greene's An Elegant Universe. Uh, so this was a, a book about string theory and... Um, I remember reading this right after college and just being amazed, having not taken any physics, just being amazed by a his ability to take this incredibly complicated topic and and talk about it in ways that people like myself without a physics background could understand. That was that was remarkable, and that's something I've always really tried to do in in teaching and writing, not necessarily with with certainly with the book, but outside of that too, the idea that we don't have to use big words uh, to convey the, our ideas. And in fact, the simpler you can talk about things, the better if you want, if what you really want to do is get people to understand what you're, you're saying. Um, so that was, um, that was another book. And then the final one would be uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon, which was just an epic tale. Um, it was not just a story, it was literature, and it uh, and I savored every page, and so um, that that showed to me what writing at its best can do, and it's something that uh, I aspire to one day be able to do. That's a really good list. Um, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's great. Um, I I have a question about any 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 overlap between other guests. Um, I mean, have you heard any of those titles before? Uh 
Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say any of those titles specifically, except for Frankel. Man's Search for Meaning uh, is popular one. That's a really. That's it's sort of like so. In if you if you study computational cognitive science or AI, uh, mm-hmm. and you're of a certain age bracket, there's like a ninety five percent probability that the book that got you into that is Good Lesser Bach. Um, uh, by Douglas Hofstadter. So that one comes up on literally every person of a of a certain era uh, who huh. has a background in AI or computational stuff. Um, and I almost feel like man's search for meaning is kind of like uh, it maps a little bit less onto the um, uh, the uh, field, but kind of like a social psychological version of that. Or like um, you know, so that that, that was going to be a follow up question. Is that you know his what he thinks of himself as the logotherapy business, the existentialist uh, psychology. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one of those labels, you know, I certainly, th- those are the ways of he, of, that he would categorize his stuff. My question is that, you know, that book and what he was able to do with it, obviously so compelling to so many people, but it's interesting that, you know, people like us read something like that and then we go off and instead of doing you know, instead of approaching it the same way that, that Victor Frankl does, we go around experiments and that sort of stuff. And obviously experiments have, um, you know, a ton of value. Uh, but it's just interesting to me that, uh, you know, Victor Frankl didn't need to run experiments to derive his psychological insights and behavior and that sort of stuff. And I just think the disconnect there between the yeah. obvious ability of him to penetrate what we all care about so deeply in terms of what we're interested in the mind and its place and meaning making in society and that sort of stuff. Um, the bars, the bars higher right now <laughs> for, yeah. uh, for, for contributing those insights. Well, you know, Victor Frankl was a great observer of human nature. And I think there's still a place for that observation and, um, look, experimentation is, is, essential to the advancement of science but so is the generation of ideas and i think we still see instances of people proposing ideas that haven't been tested yet but that can be generative and that give rise to a lot of experimentation so i think that's one way to think about frankel's contributions i mean um because there has been a lot of work that was inspired by that work on hope and optimism and cognitive interventions more generally. So, so, you know, I think there are many, many ways that we can, we can make contributions and that people make contributions in the field. And some people are really good at the experimental process. Um, Other people are good at coming up with the new big ideas and some people do both. And, um, and so I think there are different pathways to make contributions, Uh, but it is true. He, his contribution was not uh, with random assignment. Hello, Cody here. If you're hearing this, then my guest and I probably just finished talking about the books that have most influenced their way of thinking. This is always one of my favorite questions. One reason is because a person's favorite books, or a smattering of the ones that come to mind at any rate, is such an interesting portrait of the way they think. But it's also a great way to find new books. There are so many books out there, especially new ones. And let's face it, not every one of them is going to really change the way you think about anything important. 
one of the most effective ways to find those high value titles is to read the things that have been most impactful to the people you admire or look up to. Speaking personally, after interviews, I often find myself ordering the books we talked about or other books by the author that I may not have read prior to our conversation. And so I've started compiling book lists based on each episode of Cognitive Revolution. And so I've started compiling book lists based on each episode of Cognitive Revolution. Each list collects a few of the books we talked about, a couple other titles by the author, and anything else I thought would fit nicely with the rest. I appreciate you listening to Cognitive Revolution, and I genuinely hope that you get something out of these conversations. If you do, I have no doubt some of these books will also be of interest to you. Instead of asking for money to support this podcast through Patreon or some other service, I'm asking you to buy a book. My book lists are hosted through bookshop.org. If you're in the US or UK, you can buy a book on my list, or actually any available book, and 10% of your purchase goes to supporting this podcast. I really don't want to have, quote, bonus episodes for paying supporters or anything like that. I'd much rather have all my content available, but still find a win-win where both myself and the listener can benefit. You get the book, I get the support. I think it's a pretty good deal. You can find my list at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash lowercase cognitive revolution. In the UK, it's uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Buying a book through these lists is the best way to support the Cognitive Revolution podcast, so please check them out and see if anything catches your eye. There's just one other thing I want to mention. You'll notice the prices on Bookshop are almost always just a bit higher than they are on Amazon. There's no doubt that Amazon is going to have the best prices on just about everything, and especially when you're looking at books. It can be tempting to always order through them. No doubt it's hard to resist from time to time, but one of the reasons I'm using Bookshop for my book lists is simply that it's not Amazon. Every time you buy a book on Amazon, that's another accumulated inch toward the growth of Amazon and the demise of small bookstores. I'm not going to go into all of them here, but there's lots of arguments against buying from Amazon. I know it's tempting with the price and delivery and all of that, but it's important to do what you can to stave off the creeping authority Amazon has over everything we consume. So please support local bookstores, support this show, check out bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, it's something I think about a lot, the difference between literary contributions to understanding and scientific ones, right? And I think what's trained psychologists are trying to do is, is something that's scientific uh, in the best case scenario. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I'm really fascinated with this idea of, of, of literary contributions to understanding the, the nature of the mind. And uh, one, one way in which I've been saying is actually, it was something that Gordon Alpert was really, really interested in. And so his, he called it the distinction between uh, ideographic methods and nomothetic. So scientific um, methods were nomothetic, meaning they want to um, uh, categorize general things, whereas ideographic things were looking at describing specific things. And in his mind, uh, you know, of course, being sort of at the, the very genesis of both personality and uh, social psychology, was that in order to categorize the human mind in the way that we want to be able to do, we need both nomothetic and ideographic um, methods. And there's no doubt about it, 
with the kind of academic psychology that that um, you know you do and that, that I'm being trained in, we do the nomothetic experimental random assignment uh, stuff uh, increasingly well. I'm not going to say very well because we know that there's issues in that, but that's certainly what we're trying to do uh, and, and what we've made progress in. And yeah, I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, wow, I'd like. Um, it's it's much harder to make progress on the that literary ideographic you know very specific um uh you know thing in terms of that but when something hits on it like a victor frankel man search for meaning it's so powerful um so yeah well you know i i think um i think we are increasingly receptive even in science to the both the the nomothetic and and i've always pronounced it ideographic so um but i I may have been wrong all these years what did i just what did i how did i call it you, you said ideographic, and mm. I don't. I don't actually know which one is correct. So You're probably right. Let's give let's I, give listeners both options, yeah. so you know they can choose for themselves. Um, but but I think you know the ideographic approach is also really powerful. And actually, my advisor Walter Michelle was in in many ways a proponent of the two, right? Mm. Because his theory of personality is that was that. We all have our unique if-then signatures, which characterize our personality. So I may be very conscientious in one domain, but not conscientious in another. And my level of openness and eroticism may also take this characteristic profile that is unique to me, like a fingerprint. Um, but that you know, and, and certain people may have similar kinds of profiles. And I think there is real value in that approach. Um, so, so I think we can do it, and methodologically, we're developing tools to to do that kind of science increasingly, and I think both are really important. Uh, but I think you know the it's interesting having now written a book and traveling a little bit in this other space of what what I think you're calling you know literary contribution and you know science and 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 writing these are just these are different ways to have impact and and to advance ideas and i don't think one is better than the other both have value uh both have strengths and and and, and limitations and so so i think for people who are interested in having impact it's it's just important to think about well what does each approach do for you and and there are lots of ways of of contributing i mean that's what what i've learned and discovered and continue to discover over the course of my career. Uh, teaching is a way of, of having impact both nomothetically and ideographically, right? I mean, um, you know, I, I used to teach big, big classes here, 300 plus students, and it's great, you know, they learn about social psychology. And then you get a letter from one, one student who talks about how learning this information really changed them. That sticks with you. That's ideographic, right? That's a N of one kind of contribution. That's meaningful. That's a life. And so, so I think there are lots of ways to, to have impact and, and, you know, writing is one of them. I, I should also say that, you know, there's a huge level of variability, right? In terms of what we read and the evidence that goes into it, the quality of the ideas, but, but that variability is also true in science, of course, right? Like, even if everything is great methodologically in, in a study, there's still the the quality of the inquiry and the methods and, and things of that sort. So I think you've got variability in both domains too. Absolutely. No, that's uh, that all. I agree with a lot of that. Let's talk about the book. So uh, Chatter sure. came out uh, a few weeks ago 
And uh, so uh, uh, congratulations. That's very exciting. Thank you. Um, when did when did that process, so obviously the ideas in that book go back uh, a long way through what we're talking about. In, in many ways, you know, started in childhood even for you. Um, when did it start to become a book? When did it start to become a book? Yeah. Uh, about four years ago, I would say, which is when I really started the process. I... I was um, I was looking for just a new. So number one, there are lots of different um, pieces of work that I had done, and, and that I was and that other people had done that I was beginning to see connections between, and then I was looking for an opportunity to step back, which I study right the value of often stepping back, and I was really interested in just trying to think through how they fit together, and. Um, I was also looking for like a new challenge. Like I, I, I do always think like you want to be challenged and, uh, and look, you want to be challenged, write a book, not so simple, not so easy. At least I didn't find it to be a very easy process. And, and I had a sabbatical coming up. I had just finished a tour of duty as, as an editor at a journal. And, um, and so I was just looking for something, something new, um, an intellectual kind of challenge and writing a book seemed like one of them. And so I just, I took the sabbatical to just read and think and write. And it was, an, it was really, really actualizing to use another term from existential psychology. Um, they're just fun to, to make connections. I think it's so easy to get so in, you know, immersed in your own line of work, in your own little pocket of research. And so being able to read broadly and cultural psych and religion again and uh, environmental psychology and diving into the cognitive neuroscience and developmental literatures around this question that I've always been fascinated by this this ability we have to introspect and, and talk to ourselves about our problems um, that was a lot of fun and and so so the book was born over the course of that sabbatical and when I finished doing the deep dive and summaries I feel I felt like I had something important to say. And, uh, and then I took, you know, the next three years and tortured myself trying to say it clearly. And so we'll, hopefully it has had that effect. Um, what was challenging about writing the book that you didn't necessarily expect would be challenging? Oh boy. I don't know if we have enough time to cover all these things. Um, so what was challenging? So, so number one, it's a different kind of writing it's not only writing clearly, which, which has always been important to me, but it's also, in, in a certain sense, uh, journal writing is extremely linear, right? It's linear thinking, logical structure. And when you're writing, or at least when I was approaching writing this book, now there's an opportunity to not be so linear, to to weave back and forth between science and everyday life with experiences. And, and so loosening the reins initially on how I approached writing, like that was, that was challenging, right? Um, then there was a, a totally different skill set that was required for writing a book as opposed to a journal article. There was journalism. I had actually written for the, the school newspaper at Penn. So I, I did have some experience doing journalism. And it was really fun to, to kind of dust off some of those skills and start interviewing people. And, 
you know, I tell lots of stories in the book to really bring the science to life. We, we, we know that people think in terms of stories, so stories can be a really powerful tool. But what I didn't realize was that the stories you use in a book really have to be good stories. Like, you know, we all have like anecdotes we can draw from our own life, but, you know, to, to squeeze three pages out of your own anecdote, it better be a really good personal story. So, so my editors really pushed me to get great stories. And sometimes that took like, you know, 10, interviewing 10 different people until I found one that really hit. So that was tough. Um, and then, of course, there was the challenge of honoring the science, um, but without, without, without all of the space that we might use in a journal article to do so, right? So like, how do you, how do you describe something responsibly, um, not overclaiming, not underclaiming, not having a hedge in every single sentence of your writing. So that, that, that was challenging too. And, uh, and so there was a lot of effort and thought I put into, into that. And I hope, I hope I, I, um, I hope I got it right. Uh, so one of the stories that you use in the book, um, is about Bronislaw Malinowski and uh the trobrine islanders right uh without giving too much spoilers away uh could you say a little bit maybe about uh you know what uh, that's that's i've always loved um that part of anthropological history and everything like that can you just say yeah. a little bit about what that is and what you what you use that story to convey in the, the book well so so malinowski um got stranded in the in the south pacific during world war one and he ended up um, living with an Aboriginal group of, of individuals called the Trobrianders, and he observed he observed their behaviors. And one of the the things that he observed was that when they when they engaged in high stress activities like going fishing in shark infested waters, they engaged in elaborate rituals before doing so. But when they did the, the very similar activity, fishing, but in safe territory like shallow lagoons they didn't do any rituals. And so from, from that experience that Indiana Jones, like experience, he, um, came, you know, came out this idea that what rituals do. So rituals, structured sequences of behaviors, they provide us with a tool for managing our minds, for helping us manage what I call chatter, negative thought loops that characterize anxiety and, rumin and um, rumination. And, um, and I, I just love that story. I think that's another Viktor Frankl kind of story about a person who has their eyes open and to their student of human nature. And there's an observation that comes out of it. And fast forward now several decades, and there's a, there's a burgeoning literature on the role that rituals play in helping us manage negative states. And really fascinating work. I had so much fun exploring the rituals literature. I mean, you know, I think in popular culture, we often equate rituals with OCD and bad things, but, and, and, and they do have a place in OCD, but, um, but I think it's easy to forget that cultures around the world prescribe rituals for cases in which we're prone to experiencing stress and chatter. For example, grieving rituals, cultures around the world give us things to do, structured sequences of behaviors when we lose someone, when we experience the ultimate kind of 
chatter-provoking loss. Or birthing rituals. You know, you look at sports and you see players uh, performing rituals before games. And so so that's Malinowski. And, and the rituals work, you know, that, that, that was fun because one of the things it highlighted for me was that I think we often think about how people manage chatter as something we do inside our heads, like the strategies, things we can do to change the kinds of conversations we have with ourselves. And I talk a lot in the book about the different, the different tools that exist for, for shifting our internal monologue on our own. But what researching the book made clear was that tools exist outside of ourselves too, in our relationships with other people and in the physical world around us. And so in a certain sense, we, we exist in spaces that are designed to help us manage our con- the conversations we have ourselves from the outside in. And that, that I found to be truly fascinating. And the science around it was really cool to explore. Yeah, I do. I, I love that a lot. I love the just the basic insight of the importance of rituals uh, like you're talking about. Um, I think that's uh, that's definitely something that I've been thinking a lot about, you know, over the course of the past year with the violation of, you know, the typical rituals that you would put around uh, stuff, whether it's for big events like, um, you know, there's a big ritual here at Oxford, like when you start on your course called matriculation. And it's, you know, it was big fucking like parade throughout the entire town all of the people who are starting a new course that ritual is gone but then small rituals of like um you know for us our big weekend activity is we go to the local bakery and uh in our neighborhood it's the only game in town basically so everyone else also goes to the local bakery and part of the ritual of it is standing in the queue um before mm. you get your your thing and it's part of the process and even though that in itself is not an overtly um, beneficial activity, standing in queue, though they do that a lot here in England. Um, You would think it's a beneficial activity. Um, It is part of the the overall uh, thing that's happening. In some ways, is even more important to the activity than the enjoyment of the pastry itself. Um, Yeah. Well, it's funny. Across the pond... Uh, every every Sunday, I I do a ritual. I go to the farmers market, and then the you know the fish shop and the bakery, and and it's it, satisfaction emerges from engaging in the behavior and doing it, sharing that often with my family. And so, so there's a psychology, there's a science behind how this impacts us, and it, it's it's fascinating, completely fascinating. And I think you know one. One important thing to keep in mind is that because we often see rituals now equated so much with OCD, they sometimes can elicit reactants in people like, oh, no, rituals are a bad thing. No, no, no. Rituals are not a bad thing. They're a bad thing if they're taken to an extreme. But used appropriately, they can be a useful tool for helping us navigate the world. Uh, I also think the just for that specifically but also generally the Malinovsky story is so interesting uh and yeah I think it's for your the way you're using it with so basically one of the the principles that Malinovsky worked off of was his sort of school of thought of functionalism right that when we see Mm -hmm. something happening in a culture uh, what we should do is ask, what is what is what is the end that that is is serving, right? What is the function that's doing? And so I love that sort of change of mind from like, 
if you were trapped in the Trobrians back in 1914 when Malinovsky was there and you saw something going on, uh, you know, general you, um, you might think, well, gosh, that's so silly that they do that because there's nothing to do with, um, you know, fishing in shark-infested waters and that sort of stuff. That does, that does not accomplish their goals at all. And then when you change that mindset to be like, well, this cultural institution exists, what could it be doing? That's such a fascinating question to ask and way to look at other people's experiences of the world and different than I think our normal mode of being where when we look at other people's activities if what we see them doing is not it's not obvious what it's accomplishing then we just are so quick to write it off it's like well that's a very silly and an irrational thing to do you know well I mean I I couldn't agree more and you know it, it one piece of un, you know advice I would offer to listeners is to if you're if you're in this space is to follow Molinowski's lead in that regard because I know personally I've benefited so much from just being having my eyes open to the world and, and asking exactly the kinds of questions you're describing I mean some of the work we've done more recently on distant self-talk it follows in that tradition so why do people sometimes use their name when they're talking about their own problems like this had, has, had been written off as a sign of narcissism, right? Like, or, or quote unquote craziness. But in fact, you know, we've, we found that it serves a function. And so there's a lot of behaviors to explore out there. Um, I think you just need to, to find the ones to home in on. Yeah. Um, another thing that I love about uh, that story is um, Malinovsky's role in the history of anthropology because he was really the person who developed the modern uh, fieldwork methodology that exists in anthropology even to this day Um, because before him and part part of it was like you said him getting stuck during world war one he couldn't return uh to uh to poland where he was originally from um, uh, and so he was stuck down there, but he took his field work seriously in a way that other people, uh, before him did not. So this is kind of crazy to think about, but there are two innovations that he made in anthropology were, uh, there's a great essay on this by, I think Anthony Forge, but basically this is the sentiment echoed by a large portion of the field is he invented two things. One is learning the language of the people that who you're studying, which seems like it ought to be a prerequisite, uh, you know, very intuitively, but it wasn't back, you know, in, in like uh, Edward Tyler and other founders of anthropology previously to Malinowski. And then obviously, and then the second one uh, is the tent. He pitched the tent in the middle of the village with the people that he wanted to understand and that sort of stuff. And I think there's some definitely some metaphors in there, uh, which are relevant for the kind of stuff that I'm interested in psychology and intergroup, uh, 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 you know, sort of processes and interactions when you are um Trying to understand someone who's very different than you are, you need to speak their language, and you need to bring your tent, spend some time with them to uh, uh, to do that, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a great characterization, and you know, the cool thing is that we we have tools to do that nowadays, right? Like, so um, you know, you may not be pitching a tent with outgroup members, but you could certainly sample their behavior with experience sampling and smartwatches, and like learn a lot about them as they're living their lives. And so the the kind of methods renaissance that I think we are living through here provides provides people with an incredible toolbox that they can use to really 
immerse themselves in the psychology of, of others. So, so that, I think it's a very exciting time to be doing what we do. All right. So we're coming up on the last, um, you know, couple minutes here and I'm going to let you go. And before I do that, I want to point out to listeners, uh, that a hallmark of the conversation that we just had was that we spent, uh, precisely zero minutes and zero seconds talking about the central ideas, uh, that you present in, in chatter of, you know, like you're talking about with, uh, self-talk and, uh, and, and, and that sort of stuff. And, uh, there's obviously a lot there and that's the core of what the, 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 the book is at. So if, if the circumstances around those ideas, which is mainly the thing that we've been talking about in your career and your writing at the book and that sort of stuff, uh, has been interesting, I'd encourage people to go dive into those super valuable ideas, and that sort of stuff in the book itself. And I'm sure lots of other conversations that you've had, uh, around it in, in, in other interviews and that sort of stuff. So Ethan, thank you for, uh, writing the book. Thank you for, um, uh, taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me. This is super fun. I'm, I'm really happy you invited me. That's it for this week on cognitive revolution. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to support this show, you can do so by purchasing a book at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Or if you're in the UK, uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. If you enjoy the show, I'd also appreciate it if you would consider subscribing through whichever platform you'd be listening through, or by leaving a review on iTunes. These numbers are one of the main drivers of bringing new listeners to the show, so it really helps a lot. If you want to keep up with my writing, the best way to do so is to subscribe to my Substack at codycommerce.substack.com. It's free to sign up, and I try to put out at least one really high-quality, long-form article each month in addition to whatever else I may have written. If you want to connect with me directly, you can do so on Twitter or Instagram, at CodyCommerce, or by sending me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com. Finally, if you want to find out more about me and my work, you can do so at codycommerce.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Thank you.